Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, yes, that is Stu Bothwell underneath all of that hair. Um, can I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25? Let's turn there together. In the 1500s, Sir Francis Drake is rumored to have been the first to have prayed this following prayer. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, O Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, O Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas, where storms will show your mastery. We're losing sight of the land we shall find the stars. I'm a young fella, still. But one of the questions that I carry with me every single day is what does it look like for us to live life well, particularly a life well lived in the kingdom of God? Or to put it another way, what does it look like for us to never have to pray that prayer of disturbance because the dream of eternity and our vision of the new heavens hasn't been dimmed by our love of life, but has been made clearer by our love of God. For as the psalmist says, for his love is greater than life itself. Or as Mary Oliver would say, what do I plan to do with this one wild and precious life? Or to put it yet another way, how can I live today in such a way that at the point of my resurrection and at the point of the world's redemption, that on that day, I can gaze into the eyes of Jesus and hear him say back to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm gonna pick up from where we left off last week. And Jesus is in full flow at the start of Matthew chapter 25, as he responds to questions that the disciples have put to him at the start of Matthew chapter 24, questions around the shape of the future. Now, we covered a lot of ground last week, particularly around death and around resurrection. And I know it may sound a bit grim, but trust me, it is full of hope. But if you did miss last week, can I really encourage you to catch up because today's teaching will stack on top of last week's teaching. But as we talked about last week, Whenever Jesus speaks about the future, he is almost always also talking about today. Because for Jesus, the future and the present, they are tethered together. We aren't simply just to sit back and wait until Jesus returns. No, the end is where we start from. Jesus isn't waiting to, for a moment where he is going to start making all things new, because as he puts it, I am making all things new, present tense, not future tense. The new is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The future reality of our redeemed bodies and a renewed earth is breaking into the present, and we have been invited to join in. What we see at the end of our story 
We are to start living in that way now. The present and the future, they are tethered together by a story of resurrection, and we, therefore, have got some future living to do today. That's where we got to last week. But the question that I want to unpack for us today is, well, if the end is where we start from, how do we start living like that today? And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, through a series of parables, teaches us how we can choose to live both positively and negatively in this in-between space between Jesus ascending to the Father and his return. These are parables that teach us how to live life well in light of the kingdom. And this conversation around how we, in light of the future, practice the way of the kingdom today, well, it's always so important. But as we look ahead to life opening up a little bit more with the return of in-person services and me getting a haircut, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, we're all asking the question, what on earth will life look like after a year that has shaped us like no other. I've also been sitting with another question. What does the future of the church look like? And the truth is, is that the shape of the church is gonna look different than it did at the start of 2020. And by the way, that is a really good thing. Because even in the weirdness of this year, Jesus has been doing his wilderness work of preparation, of formation, and also transition as he leads us into the new thing that he is doing. Everybody who does my kind of job is praying like crazy, trying to figure out what will the church look like in a COVID normal and also in a post-COVID world. But to level with you, all I hope is that the church will simply do what Jesus has told us to do. I just pray that we will be a church that lives a good and faithful life. I wanna focus on one of the parables this morning from Matthew chapter 25. It's the parable that we most often overlook whenever we come to this chapter. So let's read together Matthew chapter 25. We're gonna start from verse one. Come, Holy Spirit. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and they all fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom come out to meet with him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and for you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. And later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord, given to us so that we may know the glory of the Father, may practice the way of the Son, and be filled over and over and over again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a strange parable. So let me just share some context with you just to shine a little bit of light on it. 
Jewish weddings were long, drawn-out affairs. They usually lasted for a week or so. There was lots of parties in lots of different homes. These guys knew exactly how to do it. And there was a key moment in the celebrations, and it was a procession that would have taken place between the home of the bride, her family home, and the bride and the bridegroom would have marched together in a procession to the new marital home where another party would have kicked off. This procession was an honored custom of the day. Oftentimes, it took place at night. And so there would have been certain guests who would have been invited to walk alongside the bride and the groom with a torch, not necessarily a lamp, but a torch. And this torch would have provided light for the bride and for the bridegroom. These torches would have burnt out after about every 15 minutes or so. And so you would have wrapped a cloth saturated with oil around them to keep your torch burning. And with so much honor and custom tied to this procession, you would have wanted to have been so on it if you were a torchbearer. You would have wanted to have served this couple really, really well, shining light on them in the most important moment of their lives as they walked through their town, their city, or their village so the community was able to see them and celebrate with them. Now, in Jesus' parable, he is clearly the bridegroom. And the virgins here are a series of Christians, five of whom are super on it and five of whom really aren't. And whenever the bridegroom arrives slightly later than expected, the engaged, ready-to-go five, they're on it, their torches are lit, and they've got loads of oil with them for the journey. But the other five, they light their torches, but they've got nothing left in reserve. And so they burn through their oil really, really quickly. And then they ask the prepared five for oil, but they're refused. And they're told to go into town and to buy some oil for themselves. And by the time they get back to the bridegroom's home, when the party has kicked off, the procession is over and the door is locked. Now, on one reading of the text, we hear the call to be ready whenever Jesus returns. And yes, we absolutely should. But remember, whenever Jesus is speaking about the future or what he says in verse one around what the kingdom of heaven will be like, he's wanting his future to inform how we are to live in the present. And for me, the most interesting moment in this parable is whenever the five foolish virgins, they ask the other five for some oil but are refused. Now, surely good, loving, wise Christians should share their oil, right? But as we see, in sharing the oil out, this would have run the risk of all of the torches burning out at some point along the procession and the bride and the bridegroom descending into darkness. The five foolish ones, they're unprepared. They're ill-equipped. They haven't done the work. And they think that they could borrow that which they do not have for themselves. And so whenever the bridegroom appears, they relied on others to fuel what they didn't possess. They're left in this scramble. They need to go and run and get some more oil only to hear the bridegroom say the heartbreaking words, I don't know you. Jesus here in this weird parable is teaching us how to live life both well and not so well in the ways of the kingdom, how to live good and faithfully, and also how to not live good and faithfully. Let me just unpack this a little bit further by starting off with how we are not supposed to do it. Sometimes we can settle for living off the fumes of someone else's spirituality. Rather than taking ownership, 
rather than taking responsibility for an alive, engaged, prepared way of practicing the faith, we can fall into the trap of the foolish, thinking that we can borrow from somebody else's alive, prepared, and engaged life with Jesus rather than doing the work behind the scenes ourselves. A few weeks back, I shared with you a simple analogy around how I'm thinking an awful lot around how we practice the way of Jesus in these days by considering a workshop or a shed or a garage, whichever works best for you. And as you walk into it, you will see the tools for living as disciples of Jesus hanging on the wall. You'll find the tool of prayer and the tool of scripture, the tool of the prophetic, the tool of generosity, the tool of evangelism, justice, Sabbathing, or whatever. And the wise ones in the kingdom, they find themselves in the workshop often picking up these tools every single day, putting them to work in their everyday lives. These tools are so overused that they have become so battered. They're wrapped in gaffer tape. They are like the ones who have the oil ready for their torches. Whereas the other five that Jesus is describing, they rarely make it into the workshop. Their tools just look brand new, labels still on them, hanging on the wall. Following Jesus, it requires us to take possession of the tools of the kingdom ourselves and put them to work in the dealiness of our lives rather than contracting our apprenticeship out to somebody else. This past year, left to our own devices, literally, we have all felt the pangs of just how much we have relied on others or a certain shape of church life to prop up our life with Jesus I know for sure that I have. I've clocked so many times this year how much I've relied on other people to do the work of discipleship for me rather than putting the tools of discipleship to work in my everyday life. Or as Eugene Peterson would put it, we have in our day the popularization of a kind of religion that instead of training people into the sacrificial life after the pattern of our Lord, seduces them into having fun on the weekends, mainly Sunday services, with Jesus as the chief master of ceremonies. We are called to a sacrificial life given over to the pattern of how Jesus lived his own. We are to own our faith every single day. And the truth is, though, it has never been easier to survive off the fumes of someone else's faith, particularly whenever we consider how much of our lives have been formed by our love of social media. You've got to see that through all of our scrolling, we are being formed through the consumption of what other people do, say, or post. And because we spend so much time just flipping scrolling, we don't feel the urgency to do the work ourselves. We feel full from consuming other people's lives. I find it funny that while we, the church, have been grafted into Israel's story, Israel, which literally means to wrestle with God, we so often settle for the height of our engagement with Jesus to be found in the perfectly crafted Instagram tile with the quote or the scripture, and we be like, ah, oh, lovely. A social media spirituality, it barely scratches the surface. We are called to grapple with God in the everyday parts of our lives. A social media formed faith, it won't sustain you for a lifetime. 
And so we need to be so mindful of our diet. So often we settle for the fast food diet of a verse here, a verse there, the quote from a megachurch pastor that we don't know, or somebody else's one-liner about God, rather than us behind the scenes, in our homes, in our rooms, in the quiet moments of our days, grappling with God, listening to him, and engaging with his word. We are to be the people who hear the teachings of Jesus, and as he said off the back of his greatest sermon, put them into practice. For as we do, we will be like a wise man who builds a home on a rock. Storms will come, pandemics will sweep by us, but we will stand firm. But the flimsy faith of fast food, consumeristic spirituality, it will fall like a house of cards. We're invited into a slow-cooked spirituality, which is rich, it is deep, it is full of flavor, it just pulls off of our bones as we learn to marinate and mature in a way of living with Jesus that definitely takes time, but it makes us robust, and all of a sudden, I'm instantly thinking of lunch. I'm speaking into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call the distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Bonhoeffer said it like this, cheap grace is communion without confession. It is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross. It is grace without Jesus Christ. But costly grace, it is grace made costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow after Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs us our lives. And it is grace because it gives us the only true life. What am I saying? The foolish think that it is possible to panic by cheap forms of discipleship when the wise know that faith is to be practiced over and over and over again throughout the long haul of life. The wise the saints, the sages, those who live life well in the kingdom, they are the ones who have done the work. They have showed up. They've got skin in the game. They show up repeatedly time and time again. They may not be the most impressive, but they are the most faithful in building a life that honors God. They've been in training for years by the spiritual discipline of trial and of error. They have lived and they have practiced the craft of the kingdom. And while they may not have done everything right over the years, they have said yes every time. They have lived open-heartedly before Jesus and open-handedly before people. They have lived with a robust stability. They have practiced a long obedience in the same direction. The Spirit has shaped them in the ways of holiness. And so they know what is needed in the givenness of the present moment. They come prepared, practiced. They are fueled up and they are ready to go. You can't buy a life like that. But trust me, that is the life that all of us have been invited into. But how do we live it? How do we live this wise life? Not a panicked life, but a practiced life. A life lived well in the ways of the kingdom. Well, if the end is where we start, and if our desired end as followers of Jesus is to hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, the question that we need to ask ourselves is how do we live as good and faithful servants right now? 
three things really quickly. Number one, whenever the foolish virgins rush back to the bridegroom's home, they only hear the heartbreaking words, I don't know you. These are some of the hardest words of Jesus. They're echoed in Matthew chapter seven. We heard that a couple of months back. Jesus is saying here, ultimately, there is a difference between doing Jesus-y things and knowing and being known by Jesus. Life with Jesus is centered upon an intimate, ongoing union with him. I'm talking about a deep devotion that can't be borrowed or faked, but that is always available to be received. Jesus, in John chapter 17, was praying to the Father at the start of his high priestly prayer, and he said this, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We are to be the ones who are to experience the future, to experience life everlasting in the present by knowing Jesus. And I know that this is so super simple, but we only get to know somebody by spending time in their presence. And yet in the presence of Jesus, we realize the most glorious of truths. We are known first by him. J.I. Packer puts it like this. I love this. What matters supremely is not that I know God, but the larger fact that underlines it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All of my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. What grace, what love, what an invitation to be known by Almighty God. You can't know Jesus through somebody else's experience. You can only know him by encountering him for yourself. We are to return I believe every day in the small moments of our time, we're to return to that place of deep union, that place of intimacy, that place of replenishment, that place of joy, that place where we get to practice the way in the future because we look forward to a never-ending age whenever we will walk in the cool of the day with our Lord. We will keep close company with him and it won't be in a garden for the few but in a metropolis for the many. And in that space, We will walk with the Lord intimately, him knowing us and us knowing him. That is our future. That is where we start today. These are the days, particularly in these days when we are all absolutely wiped. These are days for us not to settle for the distracted, numbing out practices that we so often turn to, but these are the days where we need to contend for the simple practices of presence, of prayer, of silence, of Sabbath, of worship, of delight, of hearing the voice of God and diving into his word. The saints, the ones who have learned the art of discipleship, those who are often so much older than I am, they have never grown tired of that place of union, that place of knowing and of being known by our closest friend. Number two, Jesus goes on to tell another parable starting off in Matthew 25, verse 14, where a man entrusts bags of gold to three men. Two of them put the gold to work 
and come back with a double return of what was entrusted to them. But the third fearful man, well, he just buries the gold. And whenever the master returns, he looks at what has been multiplied and says to the first two men, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in my happiness. But to the third man, because he failed to do anything with the gift that was given to him, he is just seen as wicked and lazy and he's thrown out into the darkness. Here's the thing. Each of us, as followers of Jesus, have been given the gift of the kingdom. And we are to put that to work by kingdom of heaven living today. We are not to hide this gift of the kingdom, but we are to multiply it, and we do that by blessing other people. God has placed within each of us gifts and abilities and passions that are unique to us. He has hardwired us in a certain way and he's placed us in certain places with certain people and we are to get to work. By the way, I'm not talking about simply just doing things that you can do in and around church because remember, God is making all things new. Every single part of our lives, our workplaces, the relationships that we're in, the communities that we find ourselves connected to, all of these areas, they are to find their transformation through the resurrection of the kingdom. Do you want to stick up, Angus, that Venn diagram? You've heard me teach on this before, so I don't need to go into much detail. But in the way of the kingdom, we are to faithfully put to work our gifts, our abilities, and our passions as we recognize the needs of other people and place ourselves in positions where we can mediate the intentions of God, the ways of his kingdom, through our acts of humble service. The intersection of our gifts, our passions, our abilities, the needs of the world, and the intentions of God, that is the place that I like to call the place of our kingdom vocation. That is where we are to exist. And in that place, we are to show up time and time again. The third man in this parable, he just buries the gift of kingdom living, right? It's not alive in his life. He is fearful, unwilling to take any risks. And it's heartbreaking to think, that he reckons he's doing the right thing. I've got the gift. I'm going to do nothing until the master comes back. I'm just going to keep it locked down. This is unfortunately an all too common narrative in the church. I've got the gift. I'm all set. I'm going to keep my head down, thinking that we can narrow faithfulness down to simply just right thinking or sin management, and then we just hold off until heaven. But as we talked about last week, heaven's really important but it's not the end of the world. And in Jesus' definition of faithfulness, he wants the life of his kingdom to be put to work right now. The third man just plays it safe. And in the prayer that I mentioned earlier, all of the dreams of that man will come true because he dreams way too little. He's sailing too closely to the shore when in the words of Seamus Heaney, we are to be those who believe that a further shore is reachable from here. We are to be those who always dream of eternity, who never allow our vision of the new heaven to dim. We are to be those who allow the Spirit to develop within us a prophetic imagination, seeing the comings and goings of the future city taking root in our faithful life today. Remember, every good, godly, true kingdom thing that you do in your life will be the building blocks of the new world. And I know that this stuff sounds massive, right? living as mediators of new creation as it establishes itself today. But look at what the master delights in. 
us being faithful with a few things. I'm talking here about the small, everyday acts of kingdom living, where after we receive our daily bread, our prayer is, God, let your kingdom come through me, through what I put my hands to, my choices, my love of my family, the love of my neighbor, my work, let me live in the kingdom way now. I said it last week, but it's so good that I want to say it again. The words of Tom Wright, you are strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of, and a love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and of nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies hope rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which one day God will make. This is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as we, God's people, live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit. It means that what we do in Christ today, in the small moments of our lives, what we do by the spirit in the present, it is not wasted it will last all of the way into God's new world and it will be enhanced there. Number three, we get to live an engaged, good and faithful life by also realizing that even as we wait for Jesus to return, he's quite sneaky and he has already appeared in disguise in solidarity with the poor, the hurting, the wronged and the afflicted. Or as he himself would say in verse 35 and verse 37, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. Martin of Tours was a Roman soldier and a Christian. And one day, a freezing beggar, he noticed him along the road. And this beggar asked Martin for money, but he had none. But seeing how cold this man was, he ripped his cloak in half and he gave half of it to the beggar. He went home that night and later he had a dream and he saw Jesus in the heavenlies walking around wearing half of his cloak. And an angel asked Jesus, Master, why are you wearing that battered old cloak? Who gave it to you? And Jesus responded to the angel, my servant Martin gave it to me. The pattern of practical Calvary-like love, the shape of the good and faithful future living life is found whenever we are present enough to bless the poor. And I know that all of us 
can't wait to get our lives back. And we're going to have a massive blowout whenever we get to go on that holiday, eat in that restaurant, and do all the things that we want to do. And yet this is the moment where we need to reprioritize ourselves around the ethics of the kingdom of heaven, realizing that our life is the life of serving others, not getting what we want. Because we have no excuse to avoid the least of these Because as we move towards them in love, we find that Jesus is already there. May we, the followers of Jesus, may we come to see that the good and faithful life, it is lived by knowing Christ, by putting to work the gift of the kingdom, and by standing in solidarity with the poor. May we no longer feel the need to panic by cheap grace, May we be the wise, for the wisdom of discipleship, it is found in the workshop as we learn to pick up the tools of apprenticeship over and over and over again throughout the long haul of life. Roy, do you want to come on up? You've heard me say this a lot over the past two weeks. The end is where we start. And I want to be honest with you. My deepest desire, the thing that I seek more than anything else, and I'm being 100% serious, is I long at the end of my days to gaze into the eyes of Jesus and to hear him say over me, well done, Stuart, good and faithful servant. That is my chief end, and it is my deepest desire for you to experience that also. And if that is our end, well, that's where we begin. Not by cheap grace, but by knowing him and by being known by him. By seeing our vocation as joining him in making everything new and also by seeing Jesus with half of our cloaks on his back. We long to be the good and faithful ones. So may we be the good and the faithful ones today. I'd love to pray for us as we come to worship. And for some of us, I know what you might be thinking. Man, I've settled for the foolish way, the cheap way of doing discipleship. And as I was praying last night for you this morning, I just sensed that very simple yet life-changing invitation of Jesus as he says to people who consistently discard themselves or look at their life and think that they're underqualified or haven't done enough, mere fishermen, tradesmen, tax collectors, and he says to them, just follow me. Forget about the past. Just come and follow me. And so if that's you today, if you long to start living the good and faithful life of Jesus right now, can I invite you to close your eyes and just open out your hands. I'd love to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I wanna pray for my brothers and for my sisters. And I pray that in this moment, they would only encounter your grace. I pray that they would not encounter shame or guilt, but Father, I pray that they would sense your invitation. Just come, follow me. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you give us the courage 
to live boldly, to honor you with our lives, to live good and faithfully onto your kingdom. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with more of yourself? Help us to follow you well. Help us to practice the ways of the future. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see that our lives should be spent in the ways of your kingdom. Our lives should be poured out for the sake of the poor. But above all else, Lord, may our lives be marked by us knowing you and by the glorious truth that you know us. As we come to worship, can I invite you all, whether you've just been praying with me or not, can I invite you all to close your eyes? Can I invite you all to open up your hands? And I want to pray for us as we come to worship Jesus. Let me pray. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we dream too little when we arrive safely because we sail too close to the shore. Disturb us, O Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity and our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, O Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery and where losing sight of land we shall find the stars help us to live in that way lead on lord jesus i pray in your name amen and amen as we come to worship let's worship the one who is truly good the one who is truly faithful and even as we sing holy spirit would you make us more like him we pray amen let's worship together